0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verses 1 through 24, and can be found in page 876 of your pew Bible. Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of here, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death and mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O oh great city, O oh Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, "Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a, m- a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workmen of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of Bridegroom and Bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's greatest men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and all who have been killed on the earth. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: So if you haven't come here often you know, your first time or you've just been coming a few times, I need to preface the sermon with a few comments based on the text here. Is that, well, first of all, the Bible itself tells us, if we want to hear from God, where do we go? You know, uh, People might go, try and go hear some inner voice within them. Or they might go to some popular book and try to hear what God's saying to them. But what Scripture says to us, if you want, if you want to hear from God, you go to the Bible. God spoke to them, and then God speaks to us through what he said to them. So week by week, it's our practice to work our way through a book of the Bible and ask ourselves, what did God say to them? And through what he said to them, what is God saying to us? And sometimes God speaks in warm, gentle, gracious, loving tones, and sometimes God speaks fiercely, as in this passage. So let me reassure you, if this is your first week here or second week here, we don't always preach from such mm, fierce passages. But they are part of what God says in the Bible. And when God speaks fiercely, it's always an invitation to anyone who's guilty of that to change, to seek God's forgiveness, to seek his transformation. And so it's really a warning to change or else this will happen. It's never a warning that this is what God's going to do to you. So we look at this passage together. Now, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. And most of Revelation is about basically this idea. The early church, the, the churches that were addressed in Revelation, they were going, undergoing some severe persecution. Their goods had been confiscated. Some had gone to jail. A couple had been killed. More were going to die. And they could stop that. They could solve all their troubles at once. All they had to do was worship the emperor. They didn't have to believe in any of this. All they had to do was bow down before the emperor, burn some incense, go to any celebration where the emperor is honored, and then they wouldn't be persecuted anymore. You know, they could really solve it easily. So the whole book of Revelation is pretty much telling them why they shouldn't take the easy way out. Why, it would be dangerous for them to take the easy way out. So basically, the whole book is about don't worship the emperor even if you're persecuted. Don't worship the emperor even if they kill you for it. You mustn't worship the emperor. And the whole book is about that. So, because it's, you know, over 20 chapters long, the whole book is about that. It can seem to be a little bit uh, repetitive after a while, particularly if you're not paying close attention. So, to show you that every chapter is really makes a different point, there's a bulletin insert that talks about the past. You know, about what, the point that God has been making through every chapter. He addresses the same situation. It's all There's a commonality. The situation is the same. He's addressing the pressure to engage in idolatry in order to avoid persecution. But he's making 15, 20 different points about why they should not succumb. So if you have any idea where we've covered so far, the bulletin insert will tell you that. Now, none of that applies to this morning. Because this morning's passage doesn't really talk about persecution. And it doesn't really talk about idolatry. This morning's passage is really quite a surprise. I was surprised to find it here. So you should be surprised when we take a look at it. What is God saying to them in this chapter in particular? And then... If this is what God's saying to them, what is he saying to us? Because our situation is quite similar. Take a look at what God is saying to them. The basic point that God is making here is that he will judge the Roman Empire. He will judge the great city of Rome. He will judge the great Roman Empire for one thing here that the, this chapter emphasizes. Take a look at verse 3. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. Now, this is idolatry. All the various regional powers were required to worship the emperor. But here's the new thing. The merchants of the earth grew rich from her luxuries. Why is God going to judge the Roman Empire? Because they were excessively wealthy and spent their excessive wealth on excessive luxuries. Verse 3. Then in verse 7, what do we read? Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. It's a warning against excessive luxury. Uh, Look at verse 9. When the kings of the earth committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, saw the smoke of her burning. Two sins, emperor worship and excessive luxury. Uh, Verses 11 to 13, Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargos anymore. Cargos of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and, and fine linen and, and purple and silk and scarlet cloth. And, and he goes on. Take a look at verses 14 to 17. They, um, verse, fif- verse 15, the merchants who sold you all these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. Verse 23, the, the 23 and 24, the final conclusion. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and all who've been killed on the earth. So verse 23 and 24 really ties together what we've seen so far. Here's God's warning of judgment. Why? For three reasons. Your merchants were the world's great men. You were spectacularly wealthy. Your merchant class was spectacularly wealthy. Your shipbuilders, your importers and exporters, they had phenomenal wealth. Secondly, by your magic spell, all nations were led astray. Everyone was required to worship the emperor, worship a false god. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, of all who've been killed on the earth. So here's three sins. One is their excessive wealth. The second is the requirement that everybody worship the emperor, engage in false religion. And the third was martyrdom. So verses 23 and 24 include all three reasons, but the chapter as a whole really focuses in on this. You were wealthy, and you used your money for yourself. And that's the warning here about Rome's excessive wealth and its use of its money on itself to buy luxuries. Now, why did God tell the first century church that he was going to judge Rome for its wealth? And think about their situation. One of the ways that they were persecuted in the first century was their wealth was confiscated. Now, let's say, I mean, if you got locked in jail, basically you lost your house or you lost your wealth, you lost your possessions. And people were basically subsistence living anyway, most people. What would it mean for you if your faith cost everything you owned? You know, the, the, the danger is to cling to that money, to cling to that wealth, to, to, to compromise so that you don't lose your, lose your wealth. And, and that's why he's addressing them. He said, look, all the spectacular wealth that Rome has... All the spectacular power that wealth brings. All the spectacular prominence and glory that wealth brings. All of this God is going to judge. So he's telling them, if you have to lose your money because of your faith. If you have to lose your house because of your faith. If you have to lose your, your financial provisions because of your faith. Don't let it worry you. Because God's going to judge all that. God's going to judge them for their great wealth don't cling to what's temporary don't cling to what god is going to judge worship him even if it costs you everything you have don't compromise in the first century if they wanted to join a trade union or the ancient equivalent a trade guild they'd have to worship the emperor you join the trade guild you get business contacts your business has helped if you join the trade guild your faith suffers because you have to worship the emperor as part of worshiping the gods and the emperor was part of their, their meetings together. And what he's saying is, don't pursue wealth and don't fear the loss of your wealth. Pursue God and fear the loss of God's approval and God's love and God's relationship with you. That's what he was saying to them. Now, what's he saying to us Compare us with the Roman Empire, first of all. What's he saying to our country? You know, you do realize that we are one of the wealthiest, most prosperous nations in the world. What is God might be saying to us? The UN Human Development Index lists us fourth in the world, for some reason, behind Norway, uh, Australia, and Netherlands. You know, there's different indices which rank the standard of living different ways but we're always in the top 10 as a country we have more cars per capita than any other country we have more our country has more TVs and computers per capita than any other large country 1980 we had the highest standard of living among industrialized nations in the 1990s we were among the highest the roman empire was wealthy and bought luxuries and God said there's judgment coming because of that waste of money. America is wealthy. Is God going to judge America for its wealth? Here's the reason why it might, why he might judge us for our wealth. The U.S. has one of the highest gaps, income gaps between rich and poor among any other high-income nations. The gap between the rich and the poor in this country is higher than in almost any other industrialized nation. In fact, Alan Greenspan, former chairman of the Fed, once warned that the the gap between the wealthy and poor in this country is so high and growing so fast that he said it might even threaten the whole system of democratic capitalism. Maybe the whole thing is going to implode. So, so is God going to judge our country not only for being wealthy, but for spending its money on luxuries? Maybe. On the other hand, Americans as a whole are very well, quite generous in the use of their funds. And so, in 2011, Americans gave about 300 billion dollars. That's 10 billion dollars less than, than the record, which was achieved in uh, 2007. And individual giving. Not foundations, not corporate giving, but individual giving is about three-quarters of all giving to charities in America. So Americans are reasonably generous. Outside the church, as Americans, we give about 2% of our income. Churchgoers end up giving about 2.5%. There's some indication, one estimate is that of people in churches like ours tend about about 24%, about a quarter of the people in churches like ours give 10% of their income. You know, this matters. Because if you say God threatened Rome with judgment because of its luxury and because of its wealth and its extravagant consumption of wealth, is God going to judge America? It's not so clear. We can't say just because God judged them, he's going to judge us. We're wealthy, but we're also reasonably generous as a country. you know How do we take God's word to them and apply it to us as a nation? Is God going to judge us for our absolute wealth compared to the rest of the world? Is he going to judge us nationally for the gap between the wealthy and the poor in this country? Or is he going to overlook our wealth and overlook the gap because of our generosity? The scripture doesn't really tell us as what's going to happen to us as a nation. But God speaks to us individually through this passage as well. He doesn't just talk about our nation. He talks to us. Look how he talked to them. Chapter 18, verse 4. What did God say to them as individual Christians? Chapter 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Come out of her so you won't share in her sins. So, you, Come out of her so you won't share in her judgment. Even if the Roman Empire is judged for its excessive wealth and excessive luxury. John says, the Christians don't have to die for that. They don't have to be judged for that. what they have to do is come out of her. Now, he's not asking them to move geographically to some other country. No, they're in Asia Minor, and the empire is centered in Rome. He's not saying, go move to India, you know, so you don't get judged. What he's saying is, live a different way. Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins. Live differently. Don't use your money the way the empire uses it. Don't value people the way the empire values them. Don't respect the things that empire respects. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Now, we may not be able to figure out exactly what God is saying to us as a nation with our wealth and with the way we use our wealth and with the gap between the rich and the poor. But we can certainly hear what God is saying to us individually. What he said to the Christians in that day. Uh, chapter 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. This text it speaks a word to our nation. And we can't really pin down exactly what it's saying to our nation. But this text also speaks a word to us. Whatever happens to the Roman Empire, whatever happens to the American Empire, this word speaks. Uh, this text speaks a word to God's people. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. What exactly does this entail? Take a look with me. We're going to work our way through chapter 18 verses. We're going to work our way through verses 11 through 13. Notice what it meant for them. What was the specifics of his complaint? Verse eleven. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. How was their wealth manifested? Verse thirteen. Verse twelve. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. How do we use our wealth today? Gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. They spent their wealth on jewelry, and God warned of judgment for excessive luxuries. How much is excessive? You know, how much jewelry can we have before it becomes excessive? The text doesn't really tell us, but it warns us that there is some level at which it becomes excessive you know the text does not say John Wesley in early you know early Protestant in 1700s John Wesley forbid his followers to have wedding bands because wedding bands were made out of gold at least he forbid them to have gold wedding bands now this text does not forbid us to have gold wedding rings but it does warn us that we want to be careful with how we use how much jewelry we buy at the very least take a look at what comes next fine linen purple Silk and scarlet cloth. It was very expensive to dye something red or purple in the ancient times, and this was typically a sign of the elite class and the ruling class would wear red and uh, scarlet and purple. The deep colors were hard to attain, and it was a sign of wealth. What the text warns us is clothes. God may object. You know, there's a level at which, do well, you know, please come to church dressed. But there's a level at which we can come dressed, not to church, but we can, we can spend so much money on clothes that God blows the whistle and says, hold on, where is that level? He doesn't tell us. But l- let me illustrate the thing I'm dealing with now. When I came back to this country from the tropics, you know, we were in the tropics, right? It's, you, all you need is short sleeve shirts. You can't wear short pants to work, but... Long long pants and short sleeve shirts. We come back to this country and I had one small closet full of clothes. That's all I needed was one small, you know, modest sized closet to hold my clothes. Now I have two small closets and one medium closet to hold my clothes. Now some of them I've outgrown and I'm not throwing them out because I'm too cheap and maybe I I have this faint, this faint hope that one day I'm gonna lose weight and fit back into them again. (laughs) You know, this pipe dream. But how much clothes is too much? Now, the text doesn't tell us, but it does tell us this. Too much money exists as a concept. Too much money spent on clothes. You know, how much should one suit cost? The text doesn't say. You know, it's not laying down law. But it says there is an amount of money you can spend on a suit that's, that's too much. On a, pair of clo- on a pair of shoes, that's too much. You know, how do you spend your money? How you spend it on clothes matters. Take a look at the verse 12 near the end. The next phrase is, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory and costly wood and bronze and iron and marble. This would be the way that they would furnish their homes with these kind of things. So the text again, it doesn't say how much we can spend on our living room set, how much can we spend on our dining room set, our bedroom set, but it does warn us that that sometimes it is possible to spend too much money on this stuff. I'll give you another example. My father for for a few years was working as a contractor. Uh, They were renovating homes for wealthy people. You had to be invited to buy a condo in this community. You couldn't, they didn't open it on the market. They'd do some kind of search for the wealthy people in the country and invite them to buy homes in this condo. And the odd thing is, you know, if you're, kind of blue collar, middle class. If you use wallpaper in the old days, people use a lot of wallpaper. You want the seams to match. There's a pattern, you want the pattern to match. But if you're wealthy, you want the pattern not to match. Because typically it was evidence that you're using something like silk and silk wallpaper can't match. So they would use silk on the wall or they'd have wood paneling on the walls. Uh, there was a table that looked like it had a crack in it but it was brand new table so I asked my father what's the deal with this table well the table was actually made out of four pieces of goatskin and then many layers of lacquering on top of it you think how much is a table worth given the fact that all you're doing is putting plates and eating it how much can we spend on finish the text doesn't tell us this is too much this is too little and we shouldn't be telling each other hey How much did you spend on that table? You know, that's too much. But we've got to at least address the question. This text does tell us it is possible to spend too much money on a table or on any other kind of furniture. Uh, Take a look at verse 13. Cargos of cinnamon and spice, of incense and myrrh and frankincense. Some of these spices were used for perfume. How much do you spend on a little bottle of You know, what is it, a half ounce bottle of perfume? How much does that stuff cost? You know, it's possible to spend too much on perfume or guys, cologne. That's cheaper, tend to be. Or how about verse 13b? Wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep. How much do we spend on our food? How much are you willing to spend for a pound of steak, Kobe beef? or whatever the higher end stuff is. You know, the text doesn't say where to draw that line, but the text says it is possible to cross the line. Now, it's not trying to set down a law as if it could give us a law that's immutable for all time and all places, but the Bible doesn't give us laws like that anyway, but it does warn us, you know. There is a point at which you can get beyond excessive luxury. I once went to a restaurant and ordered... Lobster stuffed scallops. Now, it surprised me, because with my background, and I had worked in a seafood restaurant, I could understand scalloped stuffed lobster. Lobster's big, scallops are small, you stuff the lobster with scallops. But this was lobster stuffed scallops. Lobster's big, scallops are small, what are you doing with this thing? Well, it was expensive, and it sure wasn't worth it. Now, you know, we'll have different, st- we'll have different standards. Maybe you think all we can do is go- eat off the dollar menu at McDonald's. Well, don't impose that standard on other people. All this text is warning us is that you know it is possible to spend too much money on the food we eat. Uh, take a look at verse 13, seed near the end. Horses and carriages... Do you know it's possible to spend too much money on a horse and carriage? Yeah, but what do we care about that, right? Most of us. You know, maybe it's too possible to spend too much money on the modern equivalent of a horse and carriage. You know, the text doesn't tell us, you know, where to draw that line, but it tells us we can draw the line. You know, it doesn't say Mercedes C-Class is okay, but anything higher than that is not okay. And I chose Mercedes because I don't know anyone in this congregation who has one, but you may, anyway. You know, I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody, okay? But the text does tell us, we have to ask these questions. Where? How much? You know, Mercedes, the C-class, okay, but not Rolls. I know no one here has a Rolls, right? If you have a Rolls, come see me afterwards. Take me to lunch. (laughs) Take me to lunch and I will offer you forgiveness of sins. Okay. Look at the last line bodies and souls of men slaves you know it's a warning about spending money buying accumulating slaves now we don't well except for sex slavery and we won't go there for this morning but we don't really have an issue with this much but but how about this you know in the rough approximation in the ni- before the 1980s the average disparity between an executive salary and an entry-level salary was one to forty and then in the 1980s, it got up to 1 to 80. And then in the 1990s, it got up to 1 to 800. Now, here's the correlation. If you're an entry-level worker, you're not a slave. Well, not entirely. You could always quit. But, you know, these huge bonuses, what are they coming out of? They're coming out of the company's income, the company's wealth. It's coming out of the salaries of the entry-level employees. Maybe it's possible to make too much money as a salary, or to get too big a bonus. Uh, the text doesn't answer where any of these lines are drawn, but but it does draw them. One ad I saw this week I just have mentioned. Doctor Dyer, is that right? Doctor Dyer headphones. Time magazine. No, are they? Doctor D- what? Dre. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Now my pop culture quotient has really come up, all right. Dr. Dre. Headphones. Time Magazine. How Dr. Dre made $300 headphones a must-have. Even for people who aren't musicians. You have a $300 set of headphones? Take me out to lunch and I'll offer you forgiveness of your sins. I mean, the, the, the Bible doesn't tell us where to draw the line, but it does tell us we have to draw the line. Now, it'd be really convenient if the, if the scripture says, lay down a law. But what it does, is it calls to our heart. And it reminds us of Jesus, who though he was rich in heaven, wealthy beyond all measure, glorious, yet he became poor for our sakes. That we who are wealthy, we don't have to come up, become poor. But he calls us to ask this. How much luxury is too much in any of these areas? He calls us to consider. Maybe this is not a good use of funds. Where does he draw the line? We don't know. But let me suppose this. If you're professional class, and not everybody in this church is professional class, but if you're professional class, if you've never said this, if you've never said, you know what? I could afford it, and I'd like it, but I'm not going to do it because there's better ways I can use my money for other people. If you've never said that, you really want to take a close look at this passage. Because Jesus doesn't judge Rome just because it persecuted the church. Jesus doesn't judge Rome just because it was uh, engaged in idol worship. Jesus also judges Rome because they had this spectacular wealth and they hoarded it for themselves and their own use. We don't know how much is too much, but we know that at that some level, much can be too much. We seek guidance from God as we go through life. We can enjoy God's blessings on us, but still live in such a way that we don't bring his judgment on us. Let's pray together for wisdom. Father, help us to know day by day. Help us not to live in guilt. Help us not to live in oppressive poverty if we're not poor. But help us to know day by day how we can honor you with the wealth and prosperity you've given us. Guide us by your spirit, by your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.